Welcome to the Postcard Academy. I'm your host, Sarah Mikatel, and today's guest is a fellow expat and also a travel podcaster, Mark Elwood, and I have been listening to him for a few years now, first on Condé Nast Traveler's Travelogue podcast, and now on Travel Genius. And whenever I hear Mark, I think this guy sounds like so much fun. I love his energy and his upbeat spirit and hearing his travel stories. And I knew he would be the perfect person to talk to about local experiences we should have in New York City. Mark is a contributing editor to Condé Nast Traveler, and he also writes for Bloomberg Luxury, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and other publications. If you live in the States, you may have seen Mark on the Today Show. He is a regular guest as their go-to travel expert. And he's been on many other TV shows, too many for me to name here. Mark and I are pretty much living opposite lives. He is an Englishman turned New Yorker living a very glam life in Manhattan. Well, I am an American who left New York and I'm now slumming it on the coast of England. But we are both enjoying life in our adopted homes. And of course, we like to talk about travel. On this episode, we will also talk about expat life. And Mark shares his favorite New York City recommendations, including some really great sounding cocktail bars and also some other hidden gems that I think you are really going to like. Now into my conversation with Mark. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for joining me today. Happy to be here. I can't wait to can't wait to dive in. Tell me what you want to know. <laughs> okay, so you are a Brit living in New York City. Where did you grow up? I grew up in London. Um, and to, to most British people, I have quite a London accent, but it's tw- it's tinged now after 20 years in America with an awful lot of transatlantic drawl. So I sound a bit like Madonna to most British <laughs> people. Um, so to, hopefully to you, I sound reasonably British, but but it is ebbing away. But there's little London twangs in there. So I, I, you, that's that's my that's my background. So how did you end up in the States? You know, I, I worked, I, my first job in travel was as a tour director. When I was an undergraduate at Cambridge, they recruited people to take Americans on art tours around Europe. And I speak a couple of languages. So I thought, hey, that's a great summer job. Well-paid, five-star hotels, sign me up. Uh, and it, what it accidentally did was rather than sort of pique my curiosity about Europe, I loved all the Americans I worked with. I've always been a very, very chipper person. And I wake up very chipper. I'm a morning person. I am not prone to depression. I am a very, very, you know, very enthusiastic human being. And I learned when I first encountered all these Americans on these tours that there was this magical country where that was okay. okay. I, I had spent my childhood having people make comments. So I, I remember my, my favorite in a meeting in London, someone, someone said to me, who put cocaine on your cornflakes then? Oh, gosh. And I thought, you know, maybe that's maybe you should be glad that everyone's, that I'm, yeah. I'm so perky. So I, I met these lovely Americans on these trips and it piqued my curiosity. And I applied to three deals to do masters in America and I got one of the scholarships. So I moved to Chicago for a year and a half and kind of never looked back. Um, I've, I've spent almost my entire adult life in America and I intend to stay here. This is very much my home. I love visiting Britain, but I'm as American as you can be with the accents I have. That is so nice to hear. Well, America is very lucky to have you. 
<laughs> Flattery will get you everywhere. So how are you allowed to live and work in the US then? Did you become a citizen? What was that process like? Do you know, it's nerve wracking because my citizenship is in right now. I've had a green card for a long time. Um, so I've been resident for knocking on 20 years, but I'm very keen to, I'm, I'm, you know, if I get on my soapbox, I think voting is very important, whatever, whoever you vote for, however you vote, I think you should vote. And because of the way international law works, Britain rescinded my right to vote a few years ago. So at the moment I have no ability to vote anywhere. So if I want to vote, I have to take an American passport. So I will do that so I can participate in the democratic process somewhere. How, why did they rescind your right to vote? Is it just because you haven't been in the UK for so long? It's because I've been a non-resident passport holder for so long. There are all these, I mean, I'm sure you discover this, Sarah, when you live overseas, and I'm sure some of the expat listeners will understand this. You learn these strange nooks and crannies of international law with your day-to-day life that you never realized. So they're not important to most people because it's a very small subset of us who are expats long-term. Um, and I have to say, expat, I hear that word, and expat is such a highly charged word. My friend Seb, who I used to work with at Convey Ask Traveller, who's now the New York Times 52 Places Traveller, always says expat is a very privileged word because we immigrant versus expat is such a uh, is such a different definition. But I think of myself as an expat. Well, I, Those, and I, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no tell um, me, what, what did you think? What do you, what do you think about that? I, see, I think it's, a very privileged stance to think the word expat is privileged <laughs> because I think if, you know, if you're an expat, chances are, you know, you're living a more privileged life than many people in the world. And to equate my experience to somebody who is, you know, coming across any sort of border because of war or because of economic struggle, like their struggle is much harder than mine. And to put us all in the same basket, I think does a disservice to to them. I agree with you. What Seb would say, and there is an episode of Travelogue where we talk about this, an episode about living overseas, which is one of my favorite episodes we ever did because a bunch of us had lived overseas. Seb's point, and I think it's well made, is that there are enormous numbers of immigrant laborers living long-term in the Middle East, usually from South Asia, And we don't think of them as expats, but they have moved for positive economic reasons. They are legally living there. They have built lives there, but they are perceived very differently. And it it really set me thinking when I think about expats, I realized that I'm picturing someone very like me and I'm a white middle-class man. And I recognized that there's something lazy in that picture. Did you know what I mean? Did you see I can, the yeah, I, I can see. I can see the point. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I mean, why why can't those other people be considered expats? I guess maybe we should could expand the word. I just I don't think of expat as a negative thing. And also, you know, I'm not here in England for economic reasons. I probably could do better in the U.S. <laughs> But I'm here <laughs> just because I, I, you know, I like living here. It's not because I'm here for well, any sort of economic pursuit. But. I, I will I will tag Seb. When we publish this, I'll tag Seb and he will wait. <laughs> He'll make this point better than I can. So okay. Seb, please tweet at him. Yeah. And yeah, I'm absolutely. And I hope it's obvious, like not saying 
anyone is better than the other. I just no, no, think, no, completely. Yeah. It's it's just the lexicon we use, which yeah. is really interesting. And it's a lexicon that doesn't come up too much because again, the point that we were making, there aren't that many of us who live overseas long term. Yeah. And it's interesting to kind of be in that mindset and meet other people and see how we look at it. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you end up in New York? Were you in San Francisco for a little bit? No, I worked on guidebooks to San Francisco. So okay. um, I went to I went to grad school in Chicago, went back to London for a short burst and then clawed my way back to America as quickly as I could. And I started working on guidebooks. I started working for the Rough Guides when that when that was a big deal. Uh, and I wrote guidebooks to Chicago, San Francisco, Florida, New York, California. I mean, I was all over the place, but I would go to cities for sort of three months at a time and, you know, live in different hotels and literally walk the streets. And it was very good training for journalism because you really are you're sort of gumshoeing your way around a city. And even today, I can tell you how to get around San Francisco or Miami without even looking at a map. Uh, and they were great times. They, they, I got to know those two cities in particular really, really, really well. I have a much more ambivalent relationship with San Francisco than I do with Miami, which I adore. Um, San Francisco, I was assigned because I remember Martin Dunford, who founded the Rough Guides, he said to me, ugh, Everyone loves San Francisco, so they write really badly about it. You don't really like it, so you'll look for interesting things to say. And he wasn't wrong. So okay. um, I, I think I think San Francisco. I I find I find it frustrating that the San, the things for which San Francisco is famous are not to me the things which make it interesting. Okay, so if we want to read a interesting guide in San Francisco, you've done the rough guides. The old rough guides, yes, you can probably find them. You probably find them on eBay, old editions of those. <laughs> okay. I'm sure someone else is now writing it. But, you know, I do love, I will say, Hayes Valley in San Francisco, I've always loved, and I've loved it for 20 years, and I love the kind of funkiness of that. So I, I'm not, it's not a brick bat to the whole city, but, um, but it certainly was an interesting experience. So how did you fall, in, fall into this marvelous career? I think you're absolutely the envy of anyone listening to this show right now. <laughs> how did this happen? I feel- I feel very lucky. You know, I've always been, I always dreamed of having a job that felt like being uh, a student where you could learn the whole time. And I realized quite quickly that journalism was that weird scam where people smarter than you for free would give you 30 minutes of their time and educate you on something you know nothing about. So I found that very appealing. Um, I fell into travel because, as I say, I started as a as a tour guide, and I tr- we traveled. I traveled a lot as a as a child. My dad is an artist, so we traveled a lot, and I learned Italian that way because we spent a lot of time in Italy. And I think that if I were talking to anyone about a way into working in the travel business, if I look at my way in, it was speaking a weird language. I speak my French is fluent, my Italian's pretty good. Um, lots of people speak French, but Italian, because it doesn't really have a function unless you're going to Italy, (laughs) people don't, don't bother to learn. And I learned it as a kid on the beach. So when you have a weird language, it limits you, but it also makes you useful. And that's what got me my tour directing job because I worked in Italy and, you know, Italy is a very important travel destination. So it's been helpful that I can communicate there very easily. So I always think that it's, it's one weird language, whatever weird language that is, something that isn't sort of Spanish or French, 
you can probably parlay into some kind of... What do, you, what do you speak? What languages did you learn? I speak Italian, so we could actually finish this interview in Italian if you would like. Italiano. <laughs> I mean, how insufferable would we be for the listeners? I know. Stop for a second. We're to just going to switch to Italian. When you were speaking, I was thinking, should I just respond in Italian? Um, <laughs> but we can save that how for another time. Learn, how, how did you learn yours? I did not study another language in school. I mean, Spanish a little bit in high school, but nothing in college. And as soon as I graduated, I regretted it. And I thought, uh, well, I want to learn a language now. What would be something easy to learn? And Italian sounded like the easiest thing. And I have Italian heritage and I like traveling in Italy. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to learn Italian. And that just sent me on like a long path. And I ended up becoming an Italian citizen because of my Sicilian ancestry. And that's how I'm able to live and work in the European Union, because I now have an Italian passport. How wonderful. I will say what I would encourage anyone who doesn't speak Italian, as we sit here pontificating about Um, it is not only is it it is the Indo-European language I believe with the smallest vocabulary and it is the easiest to learn Um, Italians are wonderfully understanding of the efforts you make and I don't think that's true in every country I know when I was a tour director and I would teach people a few words of Italian I was always thrilled by how encouraging they would be and how surprised they were that anyone would bother definitely so true yeah do you know what i mean one of those mm-hmm. languages that when you start it you get to practice because you don't feel bad they're like sure you mean baby 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 so yes anyone should we should we do a vote for like let's everyone should learn a bit of Italian. I vote for that. Yes. And I also like what you say about uh, just trying something different when you're starting out in your career, like you used Italian. And I've definitely from my conversations on this podcast have heard from people who have decided to, you know, move to Romania or move to Slovenia. And they're kind of a big fish in a smaller pond because they're coming with these different skills, like English language skills that they can use, you know, at a newspaper or anything. And um It's just a really good way to start doing interesting work quite early in your career, I think. And I, you know, in my journalism career, one of the one of the things that that, that started out my journalism, I realized as a Brit in New York, I could write for the British media about America's craziness and especially New York's craziness because there is an insatiable thirst for it. And that was very helpful. And it's the same thing. You know, if you're an American living in Budapest, find the Budapest stories and say, I can actually interview these people. I know what's going on. And you'll, there will be outlets for those. And mm-hmm. people will want to know a, a really well-reported, linguistically inaccessible story like that. And it's, a, it's an open sesame. So you travel all the time, but your home is in New York. So Absolutely. how long have you been there and, and which neighborhood are you in now? So I've been in New York for 21 years. I moved here, uh, almost 21. I just celebrated my 20th anniversary with a big party in November. Um, I've always lived in Nolita. So anyone who's not familiar with New York, New York is constantly creating new neighborhoods, largely for marketing purposes. So they will grab a little corner of a big neighborhood and give it a new nickname. That's how Tribeca came about. That's how all sorts of bits have come about. And in the late 90s, the hot neighborhood was the northern bit of Little Italy, which had been deemed the new boutique area. And they used it acronymically. They called it Nolita. 
And I remember when I moved into Snow Loser, I thought, well, I don't know if I'm going to be here for more than a year. I want to live in the hottest neighborhood if I'm going to, if I'm going to live in New York. And then, you know, I've done it. And I would give, I would tell taxi drivers, I would give them directions and I'd say, I'm so sorry. I know I'm not supposed to say this, but it's that neighborhood they call Nolita. <laughs> and you would sort of embarrassedly mention, you know, Nolita. But I mean, it used to be East Soho. I mean, you know, Little Italy. Now it's just Nolita. And it has changed a lot in the last 20 years. It's very much, it's much, much busier. Uh, it is home and I will fight anyone who says differently, but it is home to the best bookstore in New York, McNally Jackson on Prince and Mulberry. And it is worth going to Nolita just to walk into McNally Jackson, take a deep breath and realize how awesome bookstores are. The owner is the scion of a book selling family in Canada. Scionette, so forgive me. Uh, a beautiful, very smart uh, redheaded lady who cares deeply about running a great shop and she has slowly expanded to stationery and furniture and paint you know paintings and prints and other stores she's just a caring thoughtful shopkeeper if you've not been if next time anyone is coming to new york please mark it so on prince street between mulberry and lafayette um and it is truly i think it is an absolute treasure yes support your local bookstores everybody Exactly. Do I like I need to say that out loud? I'd be ashamed that I have to say it. I'm saying it. I'm saying it. (laughs) So New York has been featured in so many films. Uh, A lot of people feel like they know it, even if they've never been there. What's something that you would tell people about New York that would surprise them? I would say that you should always come to New York in October and November because it's freakishly warm, but magical. I think people assume that the seat, the winter season in New York starts this, you know, early November because you see all these Christmas movies and everyone's wading through the snow. My birthday is in early February, and that is always the nadir of the weather. The bad weather starts just after Christmas, and it really hits rock bottom just around February 5th, always just around February 5th when everything's shut down. But I would always tell people, October, no, November even, are beautiful times to be in New York. And there is almost like a bonus summer that is is not as sticky as July. And I think that's a magical thing about New York. I think people don't realize the subways here are irrational, illogical, and make no sense. It is only when you have a visitor who gets lost and confused that you realize you've learned. New York subways are a bit like English, the grammar of the English language. They are completely illogical and hard to follow, but you learn all the rules and you're fine. So I would always say, if you're a visitor, everything is so close. You do always walk, and I try and walk 90% of the time. And it's such a pleasure. New York is so compact. Living in Manhattan, as I do, and most of my friends do still do, it really is like being at college as a grown-up, which is probably one of the, you know, one of the reasons I still love it is that, you know, I get to, I get to, I get to hold back middle age a little bit longer. 
<laughs> well, yeah, about the subways. I, I lived in New York for a number of years and I think it took me like a good month before I would get on the subway. I was so intimidated <laughs> by it. I just mm -hmm. couldn't figure it out. But then once you do, then it's then it's easy. What was yeah, but you see, what was you see, I I still make mistakes, especially <laughs> when it's the weekend and the F train is running on the E line as a six, as a and you just think I'm gonna get on this train and I'm just gonna see what happens. I mean it really does feel the lucky dip of travel. So <laughs> I, I always think that people, people, I don't think that is for, and also, you know, the New York City subway system was not planned as a system. Unlike most global metropolises, it was planned as a series of competing lines. So the connections between them are very irrational and erratic. And so it doesn't actually serve as a very good way of getting around the city in the way that, say, the Paris Metro, the London Underground would do. Oh God, I love the tube. It's, oh. I always, I sing its praises. It's so much better than the subway. And yeah, now that I think about it, the last time I was in New York, there was like a, a wall of 80 flyers of changes that were happening over the so. weekend. What do you love about this? What do you love about the tube? Why do you love the tube as a sort of non-native Brit? Yes, we should go, we should get into you know? this, Mark, because yeah, you mentioned how you feel like more at home in the States and I feel more at home over here, but the tube I like because it's very clean. It's well lit. Everyone's just minding their own business and doing their own thing. It's fast. You know, it, like I, for me personally, I don't care if it runs all night long and there are now late night lines um, sometimes, but it's just, it's so much more frequent and consistent. And I trust that it's going to show up. I think the, the, the thing I always say, the things I miss about Britain are the Tube, M&S Food Hall, the BBC and British newspapers. So <laughs> if I could bring all of those to New York and just bolt them onto New York, I probably would never come back. Well, and half those things you can just get online, right? You can, but you see, I, there's not, nothing beats walking into a, a supermarket on Saturday morning in London and buying an armful of newspapers and walking into Regent's Park and just luxuriating in the inky print. Mm. I am a proud Luddite, and I, <laughs> I've spent many lovely Saturdays with a bottle of wine, sharing a bottle of wine not just for me sitting there just just reading the newspaper and and i i miss that i do i do pay for all the british newspapers here but it's not the same mm. actually that's something that i haven't done since my new york days i used to get like a copy of the new york times and go to a muffin shop called blue sky bakery in brooklyn i think it's still there in park slope mm -hmm. and read the newspaper and now i'm you know, because I travel so much, um, not nearly as much as you, but I have gone electronica and just about everything. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking lately, I really want to get back to paper because I think it would be healthy for my mind. I also think, and I've, I've said this, I've given this as a tip on Travel Genius. I, one, um, one guide that I worked with once said to me, you know, one of the best, best non-aggressive alibis you can have in a difficult situation. If you're in a foreign country, and you want to look like you belong for any reason, carry a local newspaper. Because you scam not only as someone who speaks the language, but as someone who is somehow embedded in the culture because you've got the paper. And it is armor against awkwardness in tricky situations. And it also will make you feel like you belong 
in places where you're very comfortable, but it's an extra embedding. So mm. a newspaper is a wonderful, it's a wonderful, simple safety trick. I, I think like that. that I like that. When you're in New York and you've got like a relaxing day off, how do you, how do you spend, what's a perfect day in New York look like for you? That's a great question. Um, the perfect day in New York for me would always be walking around because that is, and I still marvel. I think, you know, I've been in New York for 20 plus years and I still love every dirty, noisy, grumpy corner of it. Um, I still marvel at New York and I, I, I love it. I would probably spend the morning in Nolita. I would go for breakfast at Cafe Gitan or Cafe Habana, which are two restaurants which have been in Nolita longer than I have. Cafe Habana was made famous because it's in Lenny Kravitz's again video. So if you, if you, if anyone wants to dial that up, they'll really see what Cafe Habana looks like. It's Cuban, Cafe Gitan is North African. It's very well known. Any Australian who's visited New York will have gone to Cafe Gitan because it serves Australian style long blacks that pass muster. I would have breakfast at one of those. I would wander around Nolita. I would go to McNally Jackson because I, absolutely love it i would look at some of the shoes the shoe shops and the interior stores on elizabeth street which is by far the prettiest street in nolita i live on mulberry so i can say that i live on the ugly street uh, elizabeth is gorgeous and it is it is it looks like one of those woozy instagram backgrounds that people use for ad hoc fashion shoots. It's sort of trees and beautiful um, brick walls and kind of lovely, lovely um, sort of old buildings, but like funky things. So, you know, go there on Instagram, go, go to town. Um, I would, I often go, I find the Broken Kilometer in Soho very contemplative. It's a Walter de Maria installation, which dates back to the 1970s. I never say what it is because the whole point is you are supposed to walk in and experience what it's like. Um, but it's a free installation on Broadway, just south of Broome. And, it's, you know, you just wander in. And I often go in there. It was one of the first things I ever did in New York. And I find it, I'm sort of drawn back. So I would love to do that as a little bit of culture. I would then probably head up on a Saturday I would probably head up to the lower Fifth Avenue, which is where I like going shopping because they have all of, almost all the shops they have in Midtown, but none of the tourists. So it's like this magic. It's sort of the magic version of Fifth Avenue Uptown, but somehow it's empty. So I'd go there and I'd go to the farmer's market at Union Square and buy whatever was in season, which sounds so twee, but it really is true. I really would go and do that. You know, just, I mean, it sounds like one of those ghastly, perfect weekend things. But I really do go to the Union Square Green Market when I'm in town because it's a, um, it's such a lovely reminder that, you know, New Jersey and the Hamptons are some of the best farms in America. And, you know, you see crazy lettuce that you're like, what do I do with this? Or I bought shishito peppers for the first time because someone just showed me how to cook them because she was cooking them on the stand. And so I love that. That's a really kind of New york -y moment. And then I would probably end, I'd walk home, and then I'd probably duck into another bookstore. I love The Strand, which is on 11th and Broadway, which was obviously one of the historic secondhand bookstores. Now it's been rebooted as a sort of a bit nicer, but it still has its atmosphere. So I do that little circuit. I'd sort of walk around no later through Soho 
walk up to Lower Fifth, probably get a manicure at Rehoboth because I love that manicures are affordable in America. Do you find that hard as an American in Britain? Can you get a manicure? You know, it's funny that you ask that because in New York, I did all the time. There's a chain called Diva Nails that I really like, or Dashing Diva. I used to love them. I would get... I guess I got more pedicures than manicures. And I have been in London, well, the UK since 2011. I don't know if I've ever gotten a manicure or a pedicure here. I don't think I have. I think I stopped. Do, I mean, I'll do my nails myself sometimes. But yeah, I guess I haven't done that in a while. I didn't mean to call you out. I was trying to <laughs> shame you. But, but I think it's, it's the fact that I would never pay. I would never pay rock bottom rates for a manicure because I would worry about what the people were being paid. But but, you know, they are relatively affordable compared to what it would cost in the UK or most of Europe. And my hands never look cleaner than when they've just been sort of buffed and polished. And it's it, for a man. I'm not wearing nail polish, but they just look like they've had magic soap waved over them. So I do love that manicure. So I'd probably have a manicure, head up to Lower Fifth, across to Union Square, buy some stuff for dinner, duck into the Strand, just if there's any other books I wanted, and then, then head home and cook the food. That would be my I, that would be my Saturday circuit. That sounds beautiful. So relaxing. And I probably I must admit I'd probably have a margarita at some point somewhere on the way just to keep me going. So where where's the best margarita in this route? Do you know in this route they used to be I used to go to Rocking Horse in Chelsea, which just shut. Another one of my favorite margarita joints just shut. The health code has been has been cracking down. Oh. Um, I know it's, it's very, it's very, it's very depressing. I'm looking on that route. I'd, I would be looking for a new, a new one. So if anyone has any suggestions, tell me the margaritas I haven't had. I, I go to Cowgirl Hall of Fame in the West Village. That's another one of my margarita spots. But I'd love to have some recommendations. Okay, I'll get back to you on that, Mark. Yeah, if I hear any feedback. So what, uh, what are some of our must sees if we're visiting New York for the first time? So when I wrote a guidebook to New York, I worked on the Upper West Side, the Upper East Side and Central Park, which is not an area that I would usually find myself in or before that I wouldn't. I'm very much a downtown person. I would always say to people that, of course, you've got to go to Central Park, but start at the top, not the bottom. We all start at the bottom of Central Park because it's just easier. And also, historically, the top could be quite sketchy. And I think people learned that 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 was the last part of the park to feel less of a no-go zone. But if you go up to, you know, 120th Street and amble down, you'll see things like Harlem Mere. You'll see much less trafficked parts of the park. And you'll really get a sense of how it was engineered to be this playground for New Yorkers. My favorite tidbit about the park that I learned when I was writing about it was, because it's an artificial design, everything in it is configured to be user-friendly. You can tell where you are using numbers on the lampposts. But all the water features in the park were given different names so that you could never be confused by directions. There is only one pond, there is one reservoir, there is one mere. Every water body, there is not the south and north pond, so that people wouldn't accidentally go to the wrong place, which I love these invisible ways in which Central Park is laid out to be user-friendly. I don't really like the outdoors, so it's the perfect <laughs> place for me. It's sort of like 
green space for urban people. I'm, you know, close enough to a car so I don't get too nervous. But I would, I would do that and I would go up to the Frick. I think the Frick is a magical asset in New York. What makes it special is that you'll get, you're getting a two for one. Um, your Fifth Avenue uptown used to be lined with extraordinary mansions and almost all of them were pulled down in the last century or so to make way either for commercial buildings or for apartment complexes. Occasionally, one of the mansions survived and that one of those was the Frick, owned by Henry Clay Frick, the evil industrialist from the late 19th century. So you get to see an old New York golden age mansion and then you walk inside and he he had the perfect combination to assemble an extraordinary old master's collection he had deep pockets and an unprincipled art wrangler and duveen who wrangled all of his art got whatever he wanted using whatever means and he also had flawless taste so the frick has three or four piero della francesca's long before art history considered him significant. A big chunk of the world's Vermeers, of which I think there are about 15 in total, I think three of them are in the Frick. The Bellini in the Frick, and a great friend of mine who works in the old master's world said the Bellini in the Frick is the most important painting in New York for art history. So you've got this small collection of old master greatest hits. It does make the Met's old master collection seem as hit and miss as it as it is so wow. uh, to me is incredible i would give you a third hidden gem new york is very interesting because of course it's a global it's a global assemblage of people from everywhere but th- those people are literally from everywhere and one of the things that makes me chuckle is that there is a little britain in new york <laughs> which is on greenwich avenue in the west village and there is an assemblage of shops and restaurants which are all British. And uh, they have British service, so not great. <laughs> they have British attitudes, so not smiley. But they also have British food. And Myers of Keswick uh, on, on Hudson truly has anything I would miss from a British, that M&S food hall. I can go in there and I can get clotted cream. I can get Ribena. I can get Easter eggs. I'll pay extra for them. But I love the fact that, you know, New York's famed for all of its immigrant enclaves. But we forget that there really is a little patch of New York that almost every nationality has commandeered. So there is a little Britain in New York that's well worth visiting. What would you say is the biggest difference between New York and London? Size. The way I explain New York to, to Londoners who haven't visited, I say if you take the circle line and amputate whatever is within the circle line, that is Manhattan. So therefore, it's the New York that a visitor thinks of. The whole of New York is like greater London, but the distances in New York are so much more compact that getting around and doing more in a day is much easier. You know, I when I lived in London... You know, I I would live in I, I I could live in Hammersmith. My friend would be in Stoke Newington. That is an hour and a half by bus each way. It's very hard as a visitor to New York to really face that kind of logistical hurdle. And I think those are realizing how compact Manhattan in particular is in comparison to London changes the 
way you approach it and it means you think about doing more what do you what do you think is the biggest difference do you agree on that what what did you notice you know people ask me this all the time and i think new york and london are quite similar uh obviously there's more history over here in the uk and i find london to be quite charming i like the villagey feel of the different neighborhoods i actually um I find that people, I think, are integrate a bit more over here, the international people, where I felt like in New York, people kind of still segregated themselves a little bit. For a visitor, New York could be easy if you were in certain Manhattan locations. But when I lived in New York, I felt like you did <laughs> living in the UK. Like I felt like, oh, my God, I'm in Brooklyn, my friends in Queens, that might as well be Germany, <laughs> you know? No, and I can see that. I, and I think, you know, I'm lucky I live in Manhattan and most of my friends live in Manhattan. So mm -hmm. that makes the logistics of that, you know. But I think for visitors, yes, there are some visitors who'd stay in, in Brooklyn. And I can understand now why you'd stay at the William Vale or the Hoxton, which I love in, in Williamsburg. But, you know, as a visitor, I think if you're staying in a hotel, not an Airbnb, and I would always stay in a hotel, but it's not an Airbnb person. <laughs> I, there's an episode of Travelog all about that. But yes, not my thing. But if you're as a visitor and you're in Manhattan, you really everything is at your fingertips, and that means you can be more ambitious with what you hope to get done, which I think is exciting as a visitor. It means you know you can really drink deep. Yeah, I have to hear. I did. I'm not sure I heard the episode about why you don't like Airbnbs. What's that all about? <laughs> If some here's I was raised. I mean, this is I, this is probably my mother coming out. She would love to hear this. Um, you know, I don't think it's a vacation if I have to make my own bed. Mm. <laughs> I do not want to come back to a room. I'm I'm not particularly tidy. I'm not dirty, but I'm not very tidy. I'll leave you know a towel here, a t-shirt there, and I love that the magic of a hotel is that someone tidies it up for you. It's like having a professional, it's like paying to have a mom, you know, ran after you when you were four and said, pick up that T-shirt. Um, I love that. I don't love, um, I don't love the fact that I have to, I'm essentially self-catering in an Airbnb. I also don't love the fact that when a problem occurs with Airbnb, you have much less recourse. If a hotel overbooks you, they'll walk you to another site because they have to. When I had a when I booked an Airbnb for the Olympics in Korea, for example, four days before I was supposed to arrive, the host just cancelled on me, leaving me high and dry, not losing any money, but with nowhere to stay. And I don't like the vulnerability of that. Mm -hmm. Yes, I can have travel insurance, but that doesn't find me somewhere to stay, whereas a hotel will find you somewhere to stay. And I think of that as very reassuring. Fair points. And uh, I, anti -Airbnb <laughs> I stay in Airbnbs all the time, but you're right. I mean, there's nothing like a little bit of pampering when you're on a holiday, having somebody else look after you. I, I do like that idea. What do you like about Airbnb? Why do you, you know, t tell me why I'm wrong, because I always love hearing people's perspectives on this, because it's, it's something that, you know, we go back and forth in the travel offices, we go back and forth about it all the time. Yeah, I wouldn't say you're wrong. I guess I am more comfortable in Airbnbs because I'm usually traveling with a group of friends and we kind of like to have our own space, our own rooms, but then have uh, just the comforts of, you know, I, I do. It's nice having a fridge or to be able to make tea in the morning um, or just have like 
breakfast there if you want and yeah it's nice to go out too but I guess I I do like those little comforts if you're in a group that where you have more space especially if people snore <laughs> you know <laughs> so I think this says more so in other words if you're traveling if you're traveling with less appealing travel companions you need a bigger space <laughs> I know I think even if the companions are very appealing and the people I want to be spending time with um it's just yeah it's nice to have a little bit of space. No, I can see that. I can see that. And, and again, I have stayed in Airbnbs. My, my, and, you know, I've told, I've told the story on podcast before, but I remember we rented an Airbnb and out in East Hampton in the winter, and it was a lovely house, but there were signs everywhere warning us that thing that every surface was going to stain if we put anything on it, <laughs> and it was the least welcoming possible affect. I was fully aware that it was to be careful in someone else's home. But, you know, turning around and finding another sign that told me, be careful, this stains. Really just, I maybe want to check into a hotel. I guess they can be hit and miss. And, uh, oh, I, I would say one other thing that I like about Airbnb is I find the Wi-Fi to usually be more reliable. Not not always, but I guess I do, I guess I do too much work when I'm traveling and I should just leave it at home. But uh, for me, I like having a good Wi-Fi connection, which I feel is often lacking in a hotel. No, I can see that. I think, and yes, I think hotel infrastructure for Wi-Fi, there are often not enough bandwidth for the number of people staying in the hotel when it's busy and it can really slow down and it does make the residential one will be better. Absolutely. Mark, before I let you go, can we do a little lightning round of your favorite places in New York? Fire away. Tell me whatever you want to know. Okay. How about coffee shop? My favorite coffee shop is definitely Gasoline Alley on Lafayette and Houston, where the coffee is superb. The baristas are super friendly and it feels like a community without your having to talk to everyone constantly. How about lunch spot? If I go out for lunch, I would go to Rinton Tin, which is in my neighborhood. I would order the fried halloumi because halloumi is not an easy thing to find in America, but quite commonplace in the UK. I would have a really good glass of wine. It's a, a sort of French North African restaurant. Uh, it's always quiet. I have meetings there all the time. I love it. Yes, halloumi is everywhere here. For Americans who don't know, it's a uh -huh. delicious salty cheese. Uh -huh. I it's what mozzarella will grow up to be when it wants to be more delicious. I love it. Where do you like to go for dinner? For dinner, um, I love there's there's a there is a small local chain of restaurants called Aria Terra. There's a whole group of them, and they are the most delightful, easy bistro type place. You can walk in. And they're, they're small plates, but I just wince to even say that. But you can order three or four things, and there's cheap wine, and they're always busy. And you really get a sense of sort of like, come in for 45 minutes, eat quickly. You can go on your own. You can go with a group. You always feel welcome. So wherever there's an aria, there's an aria in Midtown. I go before the theater. There's one in the West Village. There's a terror in Tribeca. I love them, and they're, they're literally my fail sites. Where do you like to hang out at night? Um, if you want me to, I, I'm a bit of a cocktail person. I started writing about cocktails a long time ago and stumbled into that world, which I love. Cafe Dante in Greenwich Village is an old Italian-American coffee shop that a group of Australians took over a few years ago, including my friend Naren, and they've made it a Negroni palace. And I love going to Dante. 
have one of their many weird and wonderful variations on a Negroni. I have the unlikely Negroni, which has chili and pineapple in it, but is really delicious. And Cafe Dante is just, it's like my clubhouse. That's, that's where I would, if any, my friends know that if I'm going to suggest somewhere to meet, it will always be Cafe Dante. Well, how about a rooftop bar in the summer? Is there anyone that you like in particular? Do you know, I think New York has a dearth of rooftop bars. I think it's one of those bizarre things that New York should have a lot of and somehow doesn't. It has a lot of really cheesy, ghastly ones that you would have to club me over the head and drag me onto. If I want a rooftopy experience in New York, I'd go to Grand Banks or Island Oyster, which are sister restaurants. One is on a boat down in Battery Park City, and the other is on Governor's Island, just off the tip of uh, Manhattan and open in the summer. And I think they give you the views that you go to a rooftop restaurant and bar for. Manhattan, which is Danny Meyer's new restaurant, is on the 28th floor somewhere in the financial district. Not quite the rooftop and not outdoors, but that also has a phenomenal view. Fancy restaurant, but I absolutely love it. But I would go to I'd go to Grand Banks Island Oyster to have that kind of New York laid out in front of me experience. And final question, are there any culture tips that we should know about New York that foreigners uh, in particular should know before visiting New York? My favorite thing, a friend of mine who moved to New York a couple of years after I did, she said to me, she's British and she said, darling, I have to ask, when you walk into a shop and people say to you, good morning, how are you? Do they want to know? I don't know what to say because how do you answer that? And I would always say, I think the greeting culture in America and in New York is very unfamiliar, especially to Brits. And people, people, people engage with you to a greater degree. And it's okay to just be like, I'm good, how are you? Or it's okay to keep your earphones on. You don't have to engage in conversation. It is merely social lubricant. But I've loved watching first time, you know, British visitors have their politeness and convenience instincts kind of short circuit and not know what to do when someone asks them, how are you in a shop? Um, well, one more quick question, because I think this is important for foreigners. If uh, the tipping culture, it's so different in the US compared to the UK. What advice do you have on tipping for restaurant and taxi? And I always say, I always say, I always, I actually, sometimes I say, don't worry, I live here because most servers in New York hear an English accent and they know that some people use it as an excuse to under tip because they didn't realize. So I always want to say, don't worry, I don't know how this works. <laughs> um, I round, you know, I round my taxi up to the dollar above. So um, if it's under 20 bucks, I'll round it up from like nine, 10 to $11. I'll do that. In New, in New York, I would double the tax on dinner and add a little bit extra because it's the easiest way. I don't like doing 20% or whatever. I'll double the tax, round it off, blah, blah, blah. And, and my bartender friends are going to hate me on this, but they try and say you should tip $2 a drink. I do only tip one buck a drink unless I'm in a fancy cocktail bar when I will tip as if it's a meal. So in a bar for a glass of wine, you're getting a buck. If you're making me a Negroni, you're getting tipped as if you'd made me dinner. And I think that's a good good rule of thumb because it does require a bit more work than uncorking the wine. Well, these Am I are... a terrible person? I'm sure people will say to me that I'm under-tipping. I apologize in advance for the next restaurant I walk into. I didn't even know the $2 thing was a thing at bars uh, these days. So, 
Any bartenders listening, please tweet at us and tell us. Yes, I know it's probably $3 now. We're probably already under <laughs> And in the UK, it's nothing at the bar. So, yeah. Nice, isn't it? So, so much more straightforward. It's more straightforward. The, the challenge with tipping is always, you know, I'd love the fact to not have to carry any more cash. It just means you have to plan ahead in a way that no tipping no tipping doesn't but they they can't make it work here so i know know. i wish that wasn't true because i find i think tipping annoys everyone because it confuses everyone i just want everyone to be paid well and however it has to happen but um anyway mark it has been so great talking to you you've given such wonderful advice on what we should do the next time we're in new york where can people find out more about you people can find me on twitter on twitter if you want to talk to me i'm on twitter at mark j elwood which is um, M-A-R-K-J-E-L-L-W-O-O-D. And if you want to look at me on Instagram, I'm not a big Instagram person. I'm trying to be better, but I'm Mark Elwood, one word. Thanks so much, Mark. Pleasure. Lovely to talk to you, Sarah. I am so excited to have some new places to check out the next time I'm in New York City. I've actually been to Cafe Dante back in the day, but this was before it became a Negroni Palace, so it is definitely going to be on my list for the next trip. You will find links to all of Mark's great recommendations on postcardacademy.co. So I would love to know, are you on Team Hotel or Team Airbnb? Is expat a dirty word? And perhaps most importantly, do you know where we can find a good margarita downtown in New York City? Email me at sarah at postcardacademy.co or you can send me a message on Instagram. My handle is now Sarah Mikatel. I changed it after launching my new podcast, Podcasting Step by Step, so I didn't have to have 5 million different social media handles for all the different things that I'm interested in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. That's all for now. Thanks for listening and have a beautiful week wherever you are. Hey, let's continue the conversation. Head on over to my blog on Substack for more content on how to thrive through better communication, stoicism, and global exploration. That is right. Blogging is cool again over on the Substack platform. There you can chat with me in the comments, and I have plenty of bonuses for paid subscribers, or you can just read for free. So click the link in the episode notes to access the Substack Live Without Borders.